Hello and welcome to the Club Development Podcast. My name is Andrew Jenkin. Our guest this week is Head of Development at Scottish Athletics, David Fallon. David has had a fascinating career to date, starting out his sporting career working with the uh, Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014 before getting his first job in uh, sport with uh, with Scottish squash. He's since progressed on to his role at Scottish Athletics and we talk about his career trajectory within the podcast. We also discuss a number of the different initiatives that David's overseeing in his role at Scottish Athletics, including the Club Leaders Academy and the type of support that clubs can benefit from through their membership with Scottish Athletics. So without further ado, here's David. David, thanks so much for agreeing to uh, participate on the, the podcast. Uh, and also congratulations on Scottish Athletics being nominated for Sports Governing Body of the Year. I think that's twice in three years, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Going through a uh, sunny spell of athletics, so um, nice to see it being recognised. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Congratulations. Um, let's start at the beginning. When did you know that you wanted to, to work in sport? Uh, oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I played American football all my life, so from the age of 11, um, I was playing uh, for firstly the Glasgow Tigers, and I think that just became such a massive part of my life that inevitably when you're being coached by people and um, you find that people that, that, that volunteer in coaching often work in sport as well. So one of our one of my most influential coaches in my career was a, a sport development officer. And I just thought you get to kind of do this all the time. Like you're, you're, we love being together at the weekend, all the guys, and then he, he goes off and he was doing um, rugby development, but I'd never seen him out with wearing a pair of trackies and sports gear. And it was like, all oh, this kit's free. And at that age, you just can't fathom like high end yeah. sports being free. So I think that was probably just the, the, the allure of all of that. But, I remember sitting at one time, I must have been about 15 or something, going, see if I earn 20 grand, that'll be me, that'll be amazing, that'll just, now, things change. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was just um, having such a good relationship with participating in sport and having people around you that had positive experiences being shared about working in sport, I just thought that just seems like the right thing to do for me. Yeah, yeah. And how did you channel that from there I think you studied sport at university didn't you yeah so actually probably I always put my career down to just being the kind of a victim of good timing um so when I kind of finished high school I'd stayed for all six years at high school um and I went to Glasgow Caledonian to study sport and active lifestyle promotion um I don't think I'd done too much in-depth studying into what sport I'm uh, what what courses were available in sport at the time so that was probably one of the first ones I seen and I thought right I'll, I'll go for that but I just I didn't really enjoy that it was more leisure centre based or so I, I, I done what was essentially a full start and come back out of that halfway through the year to protect my four years of SAS funding so um, to go to University of West of Scotland to study sport development I, I think had I done that research I would have went to UWS straight off the bat but um, yeah, just because it was always sports development officer was always the title. So um, I, I can't think back to why I wouldn't have went for the development, sport development course at university. So, um, but actually the false start was the best thing because at that, um, the time I graduated, I aligned with the Commonwealth Games and then I was eligible for a graduate scheme. So actually, as much as I, I think I, I would have liked to have done it earlier, had I not, 
Um, had I not taken that false start and, and went to Cali and then withdrawn it, I, I don't know if I would have went to, to the Commonwealth Games, which would have then boosted my career from there, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah, so the Commonwealth Games, uh, twenty fourteen, wasn't it? Um, so was that that was kind of a, a a key part of your pathway in terms of getting that experience and that volunteering aspect. Yeah, definitely. So I uh, graduated in the summer of twenty thirteen, and there was graduate jobs coming out. So it was a year long job leading up to the games and the sports competition team, um, and the uni were so supportive with helping me to get on that and I think actually it had to come through the university you couldn't have applied for that as a graduate so I don't even think I could have been eligible a year later or even had the relationships or opportunity in place to actually go through that um yeah and that that was one of the most interesting jobs in my life I think it was just straight into the big bad world but into such a multicultured multinational workforce that a lot of people who just chased major events around the world and yeah, in terms of first job, it was pretty good. It was pretty yeah. good. Yeah, absolutely. How did that lead into what you went and did next? Am I right in thinking your kind of your your job after that was was squash? Yeah, yeah. So just as the games were sort of coming coming to an end, you started to apply and think about where you were going to take it to next. And fortunately enough, as everyone does, I was scouring the um Sports Scotland jobs webpage and. There it was, a re-advertisement for a regional development manager at the time for the west of Scotland. Didn't went about squash, just decided to go for it because I knew then I definitely wanted to work in sport and it was that development manager officer title that I think I was looking for a 20 grand that would carry me through life. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. What were, what were some of the things you were doing in that role in terms of what, what was the kind of support you were you were offering to clubs and what did that kind of look like? A really good start, actually. I think I was the first ever development member of staff that squash had ever had. So I wasn't coming into an, an inheriting a work plan. It was really, it was a great experience. It was like, you're the first ever development person. We don't really know what this looks like. And getting the kind of keys to the kingdom, I'll put it that way, like very early on in your career and, and having the flexibility to work out what works, especially in a sport that you, you've got no history with, I think really drove my my interest in sport development because it was it was a two-year fixed term at the time and I was like right I've got two years to, to make an impact here I don't even have a, a program of work that's been delivered before me I don't even know the sport and I really kind of let that fire underneath me to try and to, to go and make something happen but there was challenges with we kind of turn over a staff at the top of that organization and um I, I really did like there was interim staff and no one was really driving me so I had to find that self-motivation to to go and do it and and make it work but I, again it was just it hadn't hasn't really changed from what a traditional development position was it was about supporting the clubs creating um, participation opportunities uh, that was really it very early on um trying to squash was a really difficult sport like I definitely didn't have the opportunity to try squash when I was at school um, from the kind of side of Glasgow that I grew up on. There were no squash courts. All the private clubs in the west side of the city. So I never had the opportunity to do it. So it was about finding a way to to, to bring that sport to people because people aren't going to the sport. Um, so really kind of cool ideas. We ended up developing a whole version of the sport that you could deliver in the gym hall of a, of a school and bring it into PE. And it was just by like using 
and probably doing it a disservice here. It wasn't electrical tape, but it was the same sort of stuff as electrical tape, but it was like floor lining tape. And yeah. we used to tape like the front wall of a squash court onto the wall of a gym hall and like permanently. And you we could put in like eight, six to eight courts in your traditional school gym hall and using a foam ball and using their existing tennis rackets. It was just about trying to use what the school have got, cost effective, and how do you bring that package to them? Because as soon as you went in there talking about squash to the P department, they were just like don't see how this is going to work yeah yeah it's a real challenge in terms of that kind of next generation of, of people to to take up the sport yeah um i was going to ask what were the kind of main challenges for squash clubs whilst you were working with them and are they how, how different are they in nature to some of the other sports you've worked with i think well squash it's i've, I've probably had two experiences at other end of the spectrum so squash was all kind of private members clubs multi-sports clubs sometimes in with tennis and hockey um and it was a solo sport so not team-based whereas now when i look at athletics where i am just now it's it's leisure center facilities as you find your 400 meter tracks it's multi-discipline multi the really there's every discipline under the sun with athletics so i've got really kind of two ends of the spectrum of experience but Squash, we were always battling against the loss of public courts. It was really challenging. And when a sport as, as squash is already viewed as being elitist, it's really hard to challenge that kind of stereotype when the, the your public centre courts are, aren't getting the turnover, aren't getting the footfall to justify them being opened. And you can see it from a business perspective. A squash court is just an empty room and they see storage, they see a soft play. In fact, some of the innovation showed about what you could turn a squash court into, you were a wee bit jealous of because you were like, if we could be as innovative about the sport, we could probably um, do something with it. So, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the I don't want to talk about what was missing from the sport because some of the, the, the clubs that, that continue to exist are fantastic Um some of the volunteers we work with, some of the coaches, the staff were all so dedicated, and um, and to have that kind of challenge was uh, was was really difficult. The, the thing that we always kind of uh, put our hat on was that squash was consistently regarded as the healthiest sport in the world by Forbes magazine. I think through different formula and injury prevention, card whatever it was, it was always something that I really believed in given that I tried it and how I felt when I played it, I bought into that messaging. So um, really started to just think about how we push that messaging and, and, and regard it as a sport for health rather than a sport for affluent middle-aged men. They want to be part of a private members club. So as my career developed with squash, it was really about that kind of equality, diversity and inclusion journey, understanding what are the key areas of underrepresentation in, in sport in the sport. And, and just battling against that to try and bring those opportunities to, to people, which were uh, young people and uh, women and girls in particular yeah. were the two main groups. And how, how how did you do that with with women and girls? What were some of the kind of strategies you implemented? So I think probably the, the big push for that was when Maggie Still, the chief executive, came in. Maggie was brilliant, so kind of um, innovative and forward thinking and real champion for women and girls sport um, and she probably drove that kind of led on a partnership with Scottish women in sport and, and kind of made that connection and, and through that connection with Scottish women in sport we had access to 
um, creating a couple of programs. It started off with a program called Girls Do Squash, and, and, it, and initially that was just a marketing campaign, kind of similar to is it this girl can sort of that. And we used one of our kind of elite athletes, uh, junior athletes, Georgia Adderley at the time, and it was just about having that role model because squash isn't in the Olympics; it's in the Commonwealth every four years. You don't really see the PSA tour on on TV as much uh, unless you know where to look. So it was really just a marketing campaign to put a face of a a young girl to to the kind of the masses to make to kind of be seen to this is a sport for 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 girls. Mm-hmm. We took that at squash a little step further and actually kind of turned that strap line and branded into like a program. Um, and we tried to use it as as beyond just that marketing campaign to actually go out into schools and create uh, girls do squash activators and 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 coaches and development days and competitions and tried to bring that under that banner. Which was pretty successful, actually. It had the vibrant look and the feel, and we've seen some some good success out of that. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, you sort of progressed, didn't you, from from squash into different different roles? I was having a look through your LinkedIn, uh, and you sort of had various roles as you you worked your way uh, up, and then you moved over to to Scottish Athletics, I think, in twenty twenty one, um, to become their their head of development. So. Could you briefly describe what your role is at Scottish Athletics as, as head of development? What what do you do in your position? So I kind of lead on kind of two key pillars of our five pillar strategy. So it's kind of clubs and pathways. So supporting our clubs and pathways into the sport. Um, but that's 150 clubs and 20,000 members in the Jog Scotland programme as well. So a lot of ways to get involved um, and supporting our clubs as as a different beast. They are, um, yeah, from all the way to just organized kind of running groups all the way to operating as businesses so that that's a that's a, a big piece of work and, and i suppose underneath that comes facilities as well so pathways in order for pathways to to be established you need to have the facilities in order to um to facilitate that that participation to kind of brief overview of that pillar then we've got our the kind of fifth pillar of our strategy is community impact and health and that's always where jog scotland existed as a, a easy to engage with recreational running program but over time through the partnership with sam h jog scotland was always about the physical and mental well-being benefits of being involved it was never about elite runners and 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 everything else that we see about traditional sports so in my time here that's that's really transformed that that kind of side of the pillar um and we've put a lot of energy there and it's now growing that whole pillar of the strategy into how do we as Scottish athletics be a bit more holistic about bringing that sport and challenging or underrepresentation in sports, similar to what I did at squash? But athletics have had um, Fran Snitcher, who's done an incredible um, piece of work in guiding the organisation through the equality standard for sport. So coming into this organisation, they were in a really good place about understanding their demographics, where their underrepresentation is, and then. Um, had a few key investments to try and challenge that so it was really picking up an established piece of work and we've just taken that further now and deployed that community impact team um, to really challenge that kind of area and yeah I'm really excited about that that kind of side of it is it's good it's almost like you've it's twofold you've got your traditional sports development and your your non-traditional sports development it's probably the easiest way to to sum mm-hmm. my job up into two key points yeah 
on that on that first point then around the kind of the club the club development um what type of support do do for yourself and, and your team at Scottish Athletics what kind of support can clubs benefit from so I suppose the cornerstone of our development team is our national club managers now that is an investment by Scottish Athletics to have a dedicated member of staff for all of our 150 uh, affiliated clubs um, and they're excellent the team that we've got in place are excellent and always have been and I think that's one thing that Athletics do very well is, is hold on to talent we've got some real stalwarts within that team um, and they manage to um, keep that experience in the sport uh, and they're, they're just they really are incredible like some key programmes uh, club together has been going for 12 years now and that that's probably our biggest flagship development program and support offer to our, our clubs and essentially we financially invest in the clubs to deploy a paid member of staff and it just I mean 12 years ago I've only been with the organization coming up in three years so as I'm led to believe at the start of it it was um I was a club together officer it was just the one role it was about essentially a development officer for the club and that was a wee bit of coaching, a wee bit of administration. But I think now, 12 years on, despite COVID and the cost of living crisis and the financial strains that everyone's feeling, the clubs just keep investing in it. And we're, we're I don't want to ruin a story that's coming up soon, but the clubs have invested, um, we're talking millions of pounds over that 12 years into that programme of their own money. So it started us off with us putting in the money with local authorities in Sports Scotland. And over time, the value has been so evident, the growth, the retention has been so evident that the clubs, again, think about the sustainability of that and they financially invest in those positions and it's just morphed into something else. Like local authority money's disappearing. DCI doesn't exist in its current guise anymore from Sports Scotland. That's direct club investment. But every time a major funding stream falls off, like I'm just, we've got a line graph where we, where we track this and every time a funding stream drops off the clubs pick it up and the, the club line goes up so every time and it's just the resilience of the clubs mm. unbelievable and the value and impact of that program is is just incredible and it's jamie our cl um, national club manager that runs that and again just to what i was saying previously he's been there for for over 12 years so he's been involved with that for the whole time of that program um and i think if it's really if Jamie wasn't here driving that I don't know if that would be as successful because he's just from athletics steeped in athletics and he really is um, probably the key linchpin of, of the success of that programme yeah the, the sort of the state of athletics clubs in Scotland feels really positive at, at the moment they, as you say resilient um, impactful just the level of kind of work that they're doing um in you know numerous communities throughout the country what do you think is the secret what do you think is the kind of magic ingredient that's enabling all of these clubs to kind of really reach their potential that's a really good question i suppose well pick one the elite talent we've got the role models we've got at the minute i don't think we can ignore that that um all the, the incredible inspirational women at the top of the game and have been for, for multiple years. Um, I don't want to do anyone a dis discredit here by trying to name them all, but even you think back to Ailey Doyle um, and and now we've got Ailish, Gemma, Laura, just incredible. And now you've got Jake and Josh both winning world championships in back-to-back -back years. I mean, I think 
one key key message in the we as a sport and particularly our comms team are so um are big on is that everyone's got a role to play and everyone should be looking at those medal moments and and feeling that they've played a part in that because all those athletes stayed within our club system benefited from that club network uh, and they went into our performance programs and then they're at the top of or the, the top of the sport not even just domestically but internationally we're talking like world champions here and olympic commonwealth world medalists just absolutely unbelievable and that wouldn't happen if the training participation and com- competition opportunities weren't available uh within the sport now it might not they might not be representing or be a, a product of your club but if you're putting on those events and you're also putting out athletes into the same field that we're run that they're running in then you, you've, you've played a massive part in it and then our officials and our coaches and the governing body staff and everyone that's been involved in it has just played a part in it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's just an incredible time to be involved in the sport i think and it, it, the other side of it is we actually do have some some great facilities around the country um some challenges just now financially and um, don't want to pretend that's not happening but yeah we do have the infrastructure just now to 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 foster that talent as well mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it, it does it does feel really really positive even just hearing some of those stories from the from the conference which we'll, we'll come to um before that i want to ask you about the the club leaders academy which you're relaunching after a kind of a brief hiatus because of uh, of covid which is obviously something that we're delighted to be a part of i wondered if you could share what that looks like and the type of support that clubs are able to um benefit from as part of that program because looking at it i thought semi on the outside it doesn't look like that's something that a lot of us a lot of sports offer their clubs yeah so i think obviously there was the three cohorts previously um and that education always centered around uh their individual development as a leader and giving them the resource skills and knowledge about some key areas of club and business development um now you know andrew you've been a great support club development consultants have been a fantastic support to us and probably skipped over that a wee bit when we were talking about um how how we support our clubs probably want to just say that now that club development consultants definitely definitely feel like they're an extended part of our development team and bring that expertise and resource uh, to us like we are skilled within sport development but some of that key learning around asset transfer charitable status governance like we do need to lean on external skill sets and um yeah we're, we're really grateful to work with you and we enjoy working with you and i think you've got that relationship now directly with our clubs and and i think without that we would struggle to keep pushing on and, and offering that same support so that's probably the same overview of of, of that strand um of the club leaders academy so delighted that you're going to be part of that and delivering that those kind of key club and business development topics to those club leaders. We're then going to have Guy Richardson from Iger Performance who's going to lead on kind of seven key points within culture and, and leadership development. So they'll really be able to become a more confident leader, understand how to build a culture around them and take that back to their club. And, and I suppose that will that will be the relationship part and the, the leadership part that will allow them to bring club development consultancies education and expertise to actually put them into practice at the club um at the forefront of the club and that's when we'll start to see the impact within our clubs and see them really push on as kind of 
what we've always said is professional professionalization and modernization of athletics clubs and start to get them operating like like businesses and employing staff and coaches and, and growing the workforce from there. The kind of third strand and the newest strand, which is new for this cohort, kind of leans back to what that kind of fifth pillar of the strategy I was talking about, about community impact and health. So um, it's taking that kind of change in lives, community impact mindset and helping our club leaders understand that they're more than just a sports club. They've got a role to play as an anchor organisation within their community and how they can contribute to the physical and mental and social well-being of the, the people that live around that club. It doesn't always have to be about producing the next elite athletes. And I know I've sat there two minutes ago and just said about how that's a massive part of it, but really athletics needs to be a sport for life and something you can continue to engage in um, and stay with your network of friends and 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 participate for life. And you don't always have to be competing. You don't have to be pulling on the vest at international or domestic competitions. You can just enjoy your training group and, and being a part of it. So what we're really looking to do is bring in some diverse champions, some community champions from our three most underrepresented groups. And they are people with a disability, people who live in poverty and low income, and people from ethnically and culturally diverse communities. We're looking to bring um, kind of inspiring people from those communities in to share their story so that they can bring the challenges and barriers that they face to life to really kind of drive that inspiration within the club leaders so that they go back to their club and go, We've done a bit of community mapping. We know that there's a there's quite a, a diverse and, and ethnically diverse community like around our club, or we're in kind of SIMD one postcode, or there's through the census data and Scottish Athletics tools, we can see that there's a large population of people that have a disability around our club, and it's trying to give them the confidence, um, and understanding and data and insight as to why they should be engaging with these communities and bring them in and, and what they can do to contribute towards. Um, that kind of sport for life, sport for health um, kind of agenda as well. So really excited about that pillar. It lines up nicely with what we are trying to do nationally. And I think by offering that opportunity to our club leaders uh, or and aspiring club leaders, then I think we're just going to start to see this manifest them down into our clubs and communities. So if we lead, by example, governing body level, pass on that education to our clubs, they go into their communities and deliver, then we are going to see that those three main areas of underrepresentation are going to, the percentages are going to go up until they're not our areas of underrepresentation anymore. That's the dream. I think if I think about my legacy at, at athletics, that's what I would like it to be. I'd like by the time I move on from the organisation is that I could have played my part, not only keeping on going to exist the work that's going on, but try to bring in some of that diversity in some of those key areas. I'd really... I'd, I'd love to look back and think that's something to do with that yeah absolutely yeah no it is a really exciting well i mean we're really excited to be a part of it and even just hearing from the likes of guy and and from all the kind of community impact stuff that you've discussed there i think that's going to be a great opportunity i know um the other day when we did an information session we forgot to record it so maybe we can use this podcast as an opportunity to uh highlight to any clubs that are interested how, how can they go about getting involved if they're interested first thing i'll say is you're very diplomatic when you say we it was definitely me <laughs> but i appreciate you trying to share that burden with me andrew very nice of you yes definitely forgot to hit record so yeah we can push push that forward in order to to get involved i mean applications do close tomorrow so it's um it's 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 getting kind of 
close to the deadline and it's a quite lengthy application form. So I think if someone's seeing this whenever it goes out, it might be too late. That being said, we don't know what sign-ups look like. I would always welcome a conversation um, if this is your, your point of um, uh, point of information of finding out about it. So, But yeah, to get involved, I suppose, it really is about the club sponsoring them. The club needs to, to, to acknowledge that this person is a current or future or aspiring leader. And there's something really nice about that, that they come with the backing of their club and it will give them the confidence as well uh, to, to come to that. So, again, they'll come with their leadership challenges. They'll, they'll have a support and their own supporting statement as to why they want, um, how this aligns to their own aspirations. But then the club are going to kind of really underpin that with how they feel that this education piece is going to benefit them in the long run by, by investing in their leaders. So, yeah, it's... Uh, We've had plenty of conversations about it. I'm really, I'm really chuffed by how it's landed and, and how that information session did go, albeit unrecorded. Uh, <laughs> well, if, if nothing else, maybe we can use it for, for potentially interested next year's. Definitely, uh, definitely. Um, so also just congratulations on a very successful club conference. Again, really, really delighted to be a part of it on, on Saturday. Great to see just in terms of how it's, it's grown since we first attended um, several years ago. Um, I mean that must have been a huge task to, to plan and manage. I mean, must must take in weeks, months of planning to to kind of pull it together. So could you outline how you structured the day and the type of support and things that clubs heard from throughout the, the course of the day? Yeah, so firstly two 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 things. It wouldn't be possible without the, the wider development team. So we probably a six month task to when you start beginning to discuss a potential theme and secure the venue and, and going through all all the, the logistics of planning that event. So yeah, definitely. So thankful to the, the development team and actually the wider organization. It's not just the development team that handle the, the the booking and all the tasks involved in that. So really grateful to the kind of wider team for that support. Secondly, without our clubs it wouldn't happen because it's not about us speaking. It's about us giving facilitating the opportunity to understand some best practice that's happening out there and, and bring those clubs in to share it to other clubs and inspire. And I think there's something really nice in that and that our clubs are not protective and sharing their innovation and inspiration and best practice and passing it to other clubs, even even local other local clubs. Like they're not like, oh we are we are the only we're an, an Edinburgh based club and we're not we don't want to give this out because it's their competition. I think every club understands have essentially got a waiting list. To, to participate so there's this really nice sharing um kind of environment across athletics that i really like so yeah it, it would be nothing without our clubs being involved in it and actually this year was probably one of the most club heavy agendas we've had in in some time but that's because it was so hard to pick only just one or, or two or three like we normally do um so yeah the theme of the day was the power of people and i think that that was very apparent as we looked at what we were talking about there, Andrew, like the Club Leaders Academy, um, governance within our clubs, like at any one time, our affiliation policy says you need at least six office bearers uh, to have a, a committee for affiliation. And then you've got 150 clubs. So there's my math, like, that's 900 volunteers at any one time, roughly, uh, as a minimum to make our just the clubs work. Now, we know that there's some clubs with double that in their committee. We know that then they've got officials and coaches and Every, everyone else is involved in making that and that's a humongous workforce that's involved that's required to deliver our sport 
to our main role as Scottish Athletics is how do we firstly facilitate that uh, through um, education and resource to make sure that they're they're skilled and 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 confident enough to do those roles without um, massive turnover. Um, and obviously we might come onto the role specific training uh, as part of this, but yeah, it's just it's all about how everyone has got a role to play in athletics to bring it back to that kind of key messaging uh, with with from our comms team. It's it's a massive sport, and and we need people to believe that they are com- contributing to those elite successes because it's so easy to just think I'm sitting watching this. Olympic event in my pajamas. I've got nothing to do with this, but actually, it's not all made on the day. Like in order for that person to get there, it goes back decades. There's such a great picture of Jake and Josh in their Edinburgh race vests, and they're ten years old at the the East uh, Cross Country, and it's like it just proves that they ran together as part of the club and domestic event, and then they're challenging each other at the World Championships. Just absolutely fantastic, great picture. So yeah, the conference was just about celebrating that and challenging uh, our clubs to to think about what they do to bring people on within their clubs. And and then we launched again another um, joint project between Scottish Athletics and Club Development Consultancy and our role specific training. So we've been gearing up to that for some time, Andrew, and uh, as you'll know. So essentially, as a rough overview of what that is, it's it's a selection of I don't know you wrote them. I'm telling this for the podcast, not for you because. <laughs> That sounds really uh, condescending. Right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Saves me from doing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, is it's a series of manuals for every kind of key committee position. So I'll I'll probably omit a few, but chair, uh, treasurer, secretary, welfare officer, general committee member, and then general committee guidance, and then some documents on managing risk and a disciplinary flowchart and um, things like that. So it's. At its base level, it's just a series of manuals to give a volunteer the confidence in what they're being asked to do and how to do it. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say, it's not like a an instruction manual you would get with like a new TV. It's, it's brought to life and kind of punchy, um, really easy to read different sections and it really distills the kind of key responsibilities of those roles down to a really kind of vibrant and succinct document so it looks the part. The intention is to just take that a little bit further and embed some videos within those documents of of people who are doing these roles across our current club network and it humanises the role. You hear from someone within the sport that's already doing it and doing it well. And then the last piece of that is how we we bring that manual to life outside of the reading the, the document and watching the video and about creating frequent training opportunities through webinars or drop-ins or whatever it is to handle that turnover at the position so the way I've always thought about it is at any one time if I'm a new welfare officer I will be able to at the very least pick up that manual on day one and I'll have some sort of confidence in what's been asked of me and what I need to do I'll be able to watch a video of someone doing it and it'll be brought to life I'll see someone else and I could potentially reach out to them but at least within three months of starting that role, and that's if you join the day after the webinar, at least, say, the worst case, three months away, I'll be able to go on a call with Scottish Athletics and Club Development Consultancy and probably other people who are just starting out in that role in other clubs, but also bringing in some established welfare officers to share what they do and bring it to life. And I really think if I if I do that and I go through that journey, I'll be 
ready to kick on with a bit of confidence that I know what I'm doing. We just constantly hear from clubs that, and I can understand this, like I, I work in sports development. If I was to go to a club and be asked to be a treasurer, don't work with money, well, not to that degree, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have a wee bit of anxiety and, and kind of nervousness about getting involved in that. But And that's what we're hearing about when clubs are like, we keep asking parents to do this and they're just like, whoa, that's that's out with my skill set. What we are trying mm-hmm. to do with this project is 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 bridge that gap. Yeah. Um, and I think by looking at the table that you ran when we launched the role specific training, um, the demand for it from that perspective, I think looked very clear. I think people were adding extra seats around that table. I think we're only supposed to have eight to 10 and there was like 15 at one time. <laughs> so I think the demand for it's there. Yeah, it certainly struck me that recruiting committee members uh, is, a, is a challenge that, that clubs face. Um, so it, it was great to get feedback as well about things that we could add into future iterations of it and perhaps, you know, how to, how to incentivize people to step forward. Um, it was quite interesting to hear that a lot of people felt if they turned up to the AGM, there was a nervousness about doing it in case they got asked to do something, you know, Um so it was it was really interesting to get that kind of uh, feedback from the clubs themselves. So no, it, it was something we were really, really pleased to work with yourselves on. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to the Well, hopefully the videos will be ready soon and and the webinars as well. So, yeah, it, I, I loved the, the, the event. It was a brilliant day. Um, great to hear from the clubs, as you say, but also also the guest speakers. Very, very inspirational. Um, I suppose just the kind of head towards the end what do you think are some of the, the major challenges that athletics clubs face going forward and what do you think the future of athletics clubs will look like you mentioned earlier some of the challenges with facilities for example yeah I mean it, it definitely is that like all of our clubs are pretty much at saturation point and are operating with uh, waiting lists the downside of that is when you've got a waiting list and you're a club that competes sometimes you can view that and say well actually if you're making a choice between two members, it's we want people competing for the club at events and we understand that, but it's about how do we grow the capacity within our clubs to grow their coaching workforce, uh, to take in that that waiting list and facilitate that kind of what I was talking about at the start and just giving people the opportunity to participate for the, the physical and, and mental and social well-being benefits of of being involved in athletics because inevitably when something's at capacity then it becomes a bit more scrutinized and competitive to get involved and uh, there's no getting away from athletics that it's a competitive sport and and when our clubs do want our their athletes competing in club vest then if you decide even if you're already a member of the club you think look i'm going to stop competing i just want to come along and, and train my training group they might turn around and go well actually this training group's about bringing people on and, and pushing people on and I don't mean carrying a passenger, but why why would they do that? So it's about finding a social training group that they can be part of. So the clubs are at capacity, and then at the end of the day, so are the facilities. They're saturated with time as well. So we're at that point now where we just launched a new facility strategy, chocked full of innovation in areas for um, national, regional, and local development. Um, and we just can't get anywhere near talking about that innovation and new builds because of the current financial state of the councils in Scotland. Like, but actually almost shelving that facility strategy and, and and taking a two-year hiatus just to try and focus on saving what we've already got. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just even saving what we've got, it's about making sure that it's maintained to 
um, track mark standard, which is a UK accreditation scheme which allows licensed events to happen. I understand the financial um, climate at the minute, but some of our facilities are just being managed into a state of disrepair and it's it's sucking all the momentum out of the sport, not just in facility development, but club development and then coaching as well. There's a lot of mandatory changes now about what you need to do to, to be a, a licensed coach and it just feels as if there's there's more and more that's needed to be done to keep doing what you're doing and understandably so no one's questioning that as like first aid and welfare and, and safeguarding it needs to be done it's absolutely essential to being involved but yeah when, when you're asking for volunteers time and you're there's a lot to be done to not just get licensed but to stay licensed it's it's an ever an ever growing ask onto them um, and with such a massive workforce, um, that's when you can see our role is just about supporting our people uh, to do that. So there are challenges, but at the same time, it's probably the most exciting time for athletics in Scotland and with, with our elite athletes as well. Uh, our community impact team, there's there's loads to be excited about. But uh, it's just against a bit of a grey backdrop at the minute. It's just which could struggle and, and take the... Uh, the potential out of some of our programs. Like if, if say if if COVID didn't happen and the various wars and everything else that's impacting finances didn't happen, with that facilities strategy with our elite athletes and our community impact team, I think when you look 10 years ahead, athletics is going to be in two very could be in two very different places. We'll still achieve, we'll still get somewhere, we'll still do really well. But had that not happened, wishful thinking, you just think of where it could be and it's yeah, it's hard to not think about that sometimes yeah yeah um no absolutely i think and i think that is a challenge across all sports right now isn't it um yeah. and um something that i think sport will probably need to find some sort of solutions to perhaps community asset transfers as you've mentioned is is going to be a kind of a practical way forward for, for yeah. clubs to be able to sort of take on a bit of, of ownership and control their own destiny in that respect in terms of those facilities yeah. Um I suppose last question then. Let's let's end on a on a positive note. Uh, athletics feels like it's in a really positive place. Obviously, we've spoken about your progression through for various sports and Commonwealth Games and squash, enjoying a great career in sport. What advice would you offer to other people that wanted to work in sport? I think back to when my graduate class, and there's probably a handful of us that actually ended up working in sport. I think everyone left that degree feeling I'm either going to go governing body, sports development officer, active schools coordinator, and no one really wanted to do that voluntary step or, or everyone was looking to go straight out of uni into a 35 grand a year job at the time when that was not active schools was always the, the, the big carrot because of how well they, they paid. So all I would say is take the graduate job, do the volunteering. I'm on the other side of that table now recruiting and I know what I'm looking for. And and it is, we're looking for people that have got that, but that they're not coming straight out of uni saying, I've got a degree. It's about what have you done with that degree? What, what, what did you do with your placements while there? Roll up your sleeves, get a bit of volunteering under your belt. Um, take that maybe lower down coaching job. I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I wouldn't give up on sport too quickly because I it's everyone that I've seen that stuck it out has ended up in sport. It's a small network. You know everyone that comes in and out of the governing bodies. So, yeah, 
Um, there's plenty of jobs out there in sport. I think it's I think it's definitely attainable for everyone that wants to work in it. And it's not I, I, active skills isn't the, the be all and end all of that. There's some really exciting jobs now cropping up in sport, a lot more lined to equality and inclusion. And yeah, I think you just need to but enjoy your time at uni. I loved my time at uni. I really did. I enjoyed my studies and, and it's make it work for you. Find find that niche and that passion. So I think my dissertation was on like girls' inclusion. Um, and the way f- female athletes are portrayed in the media and then I look at what I've done at Scottish Squash and all of that around girls do squash and, 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 and challenging that gender imbalance there and it's just yeah find find a passion within sport sport is broad you do, also the other thing that I'll say is I am an absolute product of someone who get got a job in sport having not participated in those sports so that, that perception that a governing body is only for people do the sport is not true if you if you focus on the fundamentals of sport development that is transferable to any any governing body i mean mm-hmm. not not once did i have to coach a squash session or deliver an athletic session but there is a loads of stuff that i've done similarly so i like to always challenge that myth that like i seen the job for scottish squash on sports scotland and it was re-advertised because probably everyone went squash no idea what that is and i went and went for it and that was the trajectory my career then went on so go for the job and i don't want to start naming sports in case they think i'm picking on them for being minority <laughs> sports. you know what i mean don't yeah. like football it's not straight out uni into the sfa you might need to go through a couple other organizations but you can end up where you want to be by by sticking at it yeah no, that's that's great advice. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that. And thank you for your time as well, David. Really enjoyed chatting to you. Cheers, Andrew. So that was David Fallon, Head of Development at Scottish Athletics. Uh, huge thanks to David for giving up his time to come and speak on the podcast today. Uh, hugely valuable talk there and a lot of insight in terms of um, his career and his progression within sport in Scotland, but also around the type of things that he's doing within his role at Scottish Athletics and supporting clubs more broadly. Um, we'll post some of the resources in the link on the on the YouTube channel and in the podcast description. So if there's anything there that you're interested in exploring further, please do so. But until next time, see you later.